CaviarCaviar.com, treat yourself to a tasting at home. Introducing Petit Caviar 101, Caviar Truffles, and more. Provided the world's best caviar for over 30 years. Sustainable caviar, seasonal delights, boutique grocery, family oriented, family owned and operated. Proud to supply the highest quality caviar available for over 30 years. 100% sustainable caviar. Israeli Ostra, Belgian Ostra, Idaho White Sturgeon, Siberian Sturgeon, Cuttlefish, Ikea. National Overnight Shipping, Guaranteed National Next Day, Overnight Shipping Tuesday through Saturday, Sunday Local Pickup, Local Pickup and Curbside for Seattle Ready within 2 hours, Monday through Saturday, Next Day Local Delivery, Guaranteed Next Day Local Delivery for Seattle, Monday through Friday, Shop Grocery for such items like Coella Farms Cream Fresh, Betsy's Blink, Gluten Free Betsy's Blink, Black Truffle Butter, White Truffle Oil, La Brujula, Yellowfin Fina Belly in Olive Oil, Russell's Original Spice Blend, Truffle Salt, Twisting and Wears, Mother of Pearl Caviar Spoon, Mother of Pearl Spoon with Blue Handle, Rick, Fair Reed Petite Spoon with Pointed Tip, Round Mother of Pearl Palette, Caviar Presentoir with Sterling Band, Petite Mother of Pearl Caviar Spoon, State Hilaire, Modern Caviar Presentoir, Prusus, Saturn, Silver Plated Caviar Cup, Homemade Recipes and More, Mint, Mink Potato Broasty with Caviar Cream and Cream Fresh, Devil Quail Egg with Caviar, Blink with Buckwheat. Hope you had a wonderful new year. As we run you in 2024, here is chapter 6 of American Dirt by Janine Cummins. They emerged from the stairwell into a small parking lot behind the kitchen and the stink of hot dumpster garbage. Lydia tells Luca they're going to be fine, but they must be both calm and quick now. They have to keep their heads. There's a wall of hedges to hide the work of tourism from the tourists, and together they shove through it out onto a manicured path that winds among the sparkling pools before reaching the beach. Lydia listens all the time to the sounds of pursuit behind them, but so far there's nothing but the hushy voice of the ocean greeting the Sure. The towel hut isn't open yet, but a man on the on the pool deck is pushing a cart of clean folded towels in the office window. Lydia, who smiles and slings it around her neck. Thank you, she says, and takes one for Luca too. On the sand, they take off their shoes and try to snip, make their silhouettes appear like casual morning beachcombers. In minutes, they arrive safely at the adjacent local. Jason Hotel property. They put their shoes back on and walk briskly through the lobby from back to front, discarding the towels on a lounger as they go. They pass porter palms and waiters carrying trays of orange juice <coughs> and the aroma of fresh coffee. And Lydia takes two muffins from an unintended tray of food. 
left them. When they arrived at the hotel front door, there was a shuttle bus waiting to get on. Soon, they're driving past the entry of the hotel to face the Imperial, and Lydia can see their SUV lurking in the parking lot. She clutches at Sebastian's wedding band hanging from the gold chain around her neck and feels for the three's interlocking loops. She doesn't know how Javier found them or why did she mean only to scare the shit out of her, to spike her grief with terror, or to warn, warn her to the, oh, the purity of her anguish with, her, with his weird, revolting compassions. His motives are messy. Lydia cannot begin to understand them. That highlighted passage he chose the dead husband, the vulgar, the vulgar proclamation of love. Does Javier not remember what happens next? That Fermina Deza is repulsed by the decoration that she curses his name and throws him out onto the street that she wishes him dead and orders him never to return. Lydia understands nothing. For an instant, only an instant, she considers telling a driver to stop. She imagines walking over to those SUVs and knocking at one of the driver's windows. She thinks of going to Javier wherever he is, meeting him outside the confines of the bookstore for the first time. She might embrace him, throw herself on his mercy, demand an explanation. She might beg him just to get it over with. She might punch and kick him, pull the machete from her pant leg, slash his face, slash his throat, and then she looks over at Luca and it all evaporates. She's in a stuffy shuttle bus and there's something tricky on the seat. Something sticky on the seat. The ghost of some child's healthy candy. She is here with Luca and she will protect him at all costs. This is the only thing that matters. This is the only thing left that matters. And ahead of them, a black issue rolls slowly across the intersection. Can you take us to the bus depot, Lydia asked the driver. I'm not supposed to deviate from my route, but there's but there are uh, but there are no passengers. No other passengers. It's only a few extra blocks. Who's going to know? GPS the driver points to a screen strapped under his dash. <coughs> there's a different shuttle that goes to the bus terminal. This one's for the shopping district. You want to go back to the hotel, you can take the other Please, Lydia says, I can I can pay you. In response, the driver breaks and opens the door. Lydia shoots him a hateful look, gathers her things, and prompts Luca off the bus in front of her. It's too early for shopping, and the streets of the district are deserted. The driver closes the door behind him and rolls away. The boulevard wide open. It's only half a mile from here to the bus station but it feels an, an impossible exposed distance to cover, like walking across a battlefield without armor or weaponry. She hides her fear well, but Luca can sense it anyway in the cold slip of his mother's hand. Getting to the bus depot feels like some deranged version of the game, Crossroads, where instead of dodging taxes and trucks and trains, Luca and Mamie have to duck and lurch between the possibility of concealed narcos and in their tinted SUVs. The ever-present threat of gunfire screams through Luca's mind like 
Yeah, I expect a train. Don't worry, he tells Mary. If anyone was looking for us, they'd go to the central terminal downtown, right? They wouldn't expect us to be all the way out here in Diamante. Luca doesn't know about the parcel, but his logic is enough to make Lydia smile for a moment. That's what I thought too. Smart kid. She hugs the brim of Pappy's. She tugs the brim of Pappy's red baseball cap lower on Luca's face. He walks too fast. We have to walk like normal. She says, slow down. Normal people are sometimes late for a bus. Luca, Luca's limbs feel twitchy. There's always another bus, she says. It's seven minutes past six in the morning when Miami purchases, when Mamie purchased their one-way tickets to Mexico City, so they have 13 minutes to kill before the bus leaves. The terminal is a modern structure, mostly glass, and even though the sun isn't up yet, the sky has begun to lighten, and Luca can make out the shape of the cars in the parking lot. There's only one SUV. <coughs> it appears to be empty lights off, but someone could be inside waiting, seat reclined, asleep on the job. Lucas studies the SUV while Mamie quotes to the change from the lady behind the counter. It's Sunday, so the buses back to Bethlehem will be crowded with families heading home from their many vacations. Look at Mamie can look like one of those families. There's a handful of energetic children in the terminal already chattering and skipping circles around their blurry-eyed, coffee-sipping parents. Mamie hurts looking to the handicapped stall in the ladies' bathroom and makes him stand on the toilet seat inside. It's the sort of thing she usually wouldn't tolerate. Luca doesn't think anyone in the terminal noticed him and he feels pretty sure because he was studying the faces. But if there is someone looking for them here, if they do track them first to the bus stop, then to the women's bathroom, and finally to the handicapped stall, well, then standing on the toilet with your back against a wall doesn't seem like a very effective way to survive. Luca leans his hands down on his knees and tries not to shake. He watches Mamie remove a backpack and prop it in the corner before hanging the overnight bag from the hook on the back of the door. She has to dig nearly to the bottom to to find a pair of socks. They're still attached by a plastic barb, which Mamie snaps before putting them on. She he doesn't know how she does that. Luca always has to cut them with scissors. Mamie doesn't look that strong, but he knows she she's really powerful because she can always snap that plastic barb like it's nothing. She digs out a bra too and wriggles into it beneath her shirt. Then she slips up the boy's gold sneakers and turns her back to Luca to so her feet are pointing in the right direction. <coughs> in case anyone looks under the stall. They're alone in the bathroom, but he speaks to her very quietly anyway, so they can hear if the if the door opens, if anyone comes in. So we're going to Colorado. Lydia nods, and Luca wraps his arms around her neck. He leans his chin on her shoulder. Good plan. No one would ever think of Colorado. Lydia stays at the bag hanging at the, in front of them and tries to remember if she ever mentioned Denver to Javier. Why would, he, why would she have? She's never been there and hasn't even been, hasn't seen her uncle since she was a kid. Plus, it's far, Lucas says. 
Yes, maybe it says very far away from here. In fact, look at those with some degree of precision just how far Denver is from Acapulco, almost 2,000 almost miles by car. He knows this because Luca has perfect direction the way some prodigies have perfect pitch. He was born with, with he was born with a, an interest, intrinsic intrinsic sense of his position on the globe like a human GPS pinging his way through the universe. When he sees something on a map, it lodges in his memory forever. I'm going to miss the geography he says. He's been studying for months in September. His school paid 600 pesos for him to take the international qualifying exam because his teacher was convinced he would bring home the $10,000 grand prize. I'm sorry, mijo, Lydia says, kissing his arm. Lucas shrugged. It doesn't matter. Before yesterday, that geography had seemed so important to him, to them all. Now Now it feels like the most trivial thing in the world along with everything else on the running to-do list. Lydia kept inside the register in the bookshop, fill out the church paperwork for Lucas communion, pay the water bill, take a bottle to her cardiology appointments, buy a gift for Yennefer's Quincy and Nera. What a waste of time it had all been. Lydia feels annoyed that her niece won't get to see the music box she just for her special day. How expensive it was. She tri- she realizes even as this thought occurs to her how bizarre and awful it is, but she can't stop it from crashing in. She doesn't rebuke herself for thinking it. <coughs> she does herself a small kindness of forgiving her malfunctioning logic. Look at what's burst in her ear. What with the population of almost 700,000 Denver Nicknamed the Mile High City because of its elevation, is located just east of the Rocky Mountain foothills. Reciting from the memory of flashcards, it is a state capital of Colorado and one quarter of its population claims Mexican heritage. Lydia squeezes arm, reaches up, and runs a hand through it through his black hot hair. The summer before last, when Lucas' enduring interest in maps began to shift from fascination to obsession. Lydia kept him busy at the bookstore with guidebooks and atlases. It seems impossible that back then, just so recently, Acapulco was bright with tourists and music and the shops and the sea. Rock pigeons strutted across the sand. Past foreign cruise ships disgorged their sneakered passengers from the, onto the streets. Their pockets fat with dollars, their skin glistening from coconut scented sunscreen. The dolls filled the bars and restaurants and Lydia's bookshop. They filled the register. Those tourists be- bought the guidebooks and atlases along with series novels and frivolous novels and souvenirs, keychains and tiny tubes of sand colored with tiny stuffers that Lydia kept in a big fishbowl beside the register. An ideal meal. Those tourists couldn't go, couldn't get enough of Luca. Lydia set him up like a puppet on a stool, and he'd tell them in precise English about the places where they came from. He was six years old, a wonder boy. With a population of 640,000, perhaps 
Portland is located at the confluence of the Columbia and Willamette Rivers and is the largest city in the state of Oregon. The city was incorporated in 1851, 65 years after its eastern Street in coastal Maine. <coughs> Henry from Portland, Oregon stood in front of Luca with his mouth hanging open. Marge, come here, you gotta see this. Do it again, Marge, joined her husband, and Luca repeated his spiel. Incredible kid, you're just, you are just incredible, Marge. Give the kid some money. Did you, ma- did you make all that up, Marge asked skeptically, digging in her purse for some money regardless. Nah, he knew the rivers. Henry defended him. How could he make that up? It's real, Lucas said. I just remember things, especially about maps and places. Well, Henry's right. It's incredible. Marge gave him a dollar and in perfect English. Where did you learn that perfect English? Pocopoco, Lucas said simply, and YouTube. Lydia Washington says and felt absolutely proud, smug even. Her boy was perfect, so smart and accomplished, so guapo and happy. She'd been teaching him English for almost as long as he'd been speaking Spanish. It was a skill that she knew would serve him well growing up in a tourist town. But he quickly outstripped her knowledge of the language, and then they proceeded to learn together, mostly on her phone or computer. YouTube lessons, Rosetta Stone soap operas, they often spoke English to each other when Sebastian wasn't around or when they pretended to have a secret in front of him. Sometimes they tried out slang on each other. She called Luca dude and he called her shorty. Marge and Henry laughed at Luca's pragmatic charm and then gathered their friends from the cruise ship and returned to watch him perform. They offered him a dollar for every city he could tell them about. He made $37 that day and could have kept going except the tourists had to get back to their ship. So yes, this good geography has been almost two years coming, but Lydia cannot think of details right now. The annulled logistics of her life, her brain can't hold them. Even the biggest, most fundamental facts seem impossible to comprehend. Outside the stall, <coughs> the bathroom door swing open. There's no squeak, but they can tell someone has come in because suddenly the sounds beyond the door are temporarily louder and then softer again as the door swings shut. They both hold their breath. Luca still draped over Mamie's back and she grips his arm where they encircle her neck. And the pads of her fingers of his fingers turn yellow as they dig into the bones of Mamie's wrist. She doesn't move. He squeezes her eyes shut. Shut, but soon there's a sound of the door latching on the neighboring cell. An old woman loudly clearing her throat. Luca can feel Mamie let go of her breath like the air leaving a deflated balloon. He put his lips against her neck. After the lady in the stall next door finishes her visits, washes her hands, and confidence himself out loud in the bathroom mirror, it's time for them to venture back out. He knows they can't stay in this bathroom forever, and it, his heart beats. In a clamorous thud, when Mamie opens the door, it's time to get on the bus. When they ru- when they cross the lobby, Luca rushes to the faces of the people who remain in the terminal. The immediate, the immaculate lady behind the counter, with her lips outlined a shade darker than the lips themselves. The man in his paper hat selling coffee 
a couple with the fussy baby who are waiting until the last minute to board on the last on the television affixed to the wall Lucas sees a prim newscaper and then starkly above his little house the yellow crime scene tape flutters and sags the camera focuses on the courtyard gate hanging open and then the back patio the tinted shapes of Lucas family covered by partly tarps the green faces of love Felicia as they talk as they walk stoop and scratch as they walk, stoop, stand, scratch, breathe, as they do things living people do when they walk among corpses. Lucas squeezes mother's hand not to get her attention, but to prevent himself from crying out. She doesn't look up. She pulls him along the shiny tile floor, but he feels as if he's walking in a suckling stand at ice route time. Lucas waits for the crack of the ballet to waits for the crack of a bolt to strike the front wall of the he waits for the shower of raining glass, but now his feet are on the pavement outside, and the pavement is a shadowy purple in the growing cast of daylight. His sneakers are blue, there are only two people wait in front of them to board the bus. Only one maybe pushes him on ahead of her, and then she's there too, glued to his backpack, propelling him down the aisle past extruding, extruding knees and elbows. When he collapses into a, the seat against the fabric of the cushions and maybe plops down next to him, he feels more grateful and relieved than he ever has in his entire life. <coughs> we made it, he says quietly. Maybe opens her lips without moving her teeth. And she doesn't look relieved. Oh, mijo, she says. She pulls his head onto her lap and strokes her head, his hair until their busts and rebels north onto the Viaducto Diamante, Diamante, and gathers speed. He falls asleep. Thanks for listening to this chapter. Have a good week and stay safe.